Hi, everyone. Dr. B here. And again, thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask the Dentist. And if you're new to our podcast, welcome. I appreciate your interest in oral health. And today we're going to talk about oral health as it relates to brain health. And we are speaking with a neurologist, Dr. David Perlmutter. I see him as one of the great functional healthcare educators of our time. And yes, he is an influencer, healthcare influencer, but to the highest degree of integrity and quality. And most of his ideas are 10 years ahead of their time. And what a perfect person to speak to about oral health as it relates to brain health and vice versa. It's an axis. We'll talk about the gut a little bit. We're going to talk about pineal gland calcification. That's more about what dentistry introduced into the system. Fluoride, not what the body has introduced or complication of health. What else are we going to talk about? Certainly about a, for example, the P. gingivalis bug. That's the big perio bug, gum disease bug, and how that affects the brain. And most exciting to me about this conversation was how, and he clarified a lot of things for me, because when I do a lot of this research, I come across a lot of mechanism of action where when something does cross the blood-brain barrier, it does this specific thing, like to a lipid layer of a mitochondria cell or to a the myelin sheath of a cell or a receptor cell in, in the brain. These are things that are well beyond my scope of education and knowledge. And so it's great to be able to speak to David about the actual mechanism and what actually happens when these things do get into the brain. So I found that to be very exciting. Definitely checked a few of, of my boxes. So anyway, let's get to his bio and then we'll get started. He is a board certified neurologist, as I mentioned, and a six-time New York Times bestselling author. Quite a combo. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Again, another great thing, a physician who is well-versed in food and diet and nutrition. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals. I've read some of these studies, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition, one of my favorite journals. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank, IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, Harvard, and serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. His books have been published in 32 different languages, and they include the number one New York bestseller, Grain Brain. Most of you have heard of that book. It is a must-read. Other New York Times bestsellers include Brain Maker, Brain Wash, and my favorite, as I mentioned, Drop Acid. He has been interviewed on many nationally syndicated television programs, including 2020, Larry King Live, CNN, Fox News, Fox and Friends, The Today Show, Oprah, The CBS Early Show, and CBS This Morning. Again, he is in high demand for the information that he is providing to us. He's also a recipient of numerous awards, including the Linus Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disorders, the National Nutritional Food Association Clinician of the Year Award, and the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the College of Nutrition, and most recently, the 2019 Global Leadership Award from the Integrative Healthcare Symposium. I hope that gives you an idea of how broad and how well 
I don't want to use the word educated. He certainly is educated, but the scope of his knowledge and how he is able to bring everything in so that we can live better lives. So again, I look forward to this discussion. You'll see what I mean. Here is our discussion with David Perlmutter. David, thank you so much for joining us and spending time with us. We are very excited to have you on the show and talk brain stuff. Mark, nothing makes me happier than talking about brain stuff. Well, there are a lot of things that make me happy. That's one of them. Let's leave it at that. Well, I mean, we started out our conversation talking about boating, and of course, there are other great topics. But again, I've in the intro, which you haven't seen yet, I talked about how excited we are at Acid Dentist to be able to talk to a neurologist. It seems that dentists and neurologists have a lot to talk about when it comes to connections. That's Who'd for sure. That's for sure. And I think the world is is pretty much unaware of this incredible connection. I mean, you know, we've seen associations over the years between poor oral health and risk for X, Y, and Z, be it cardiovascular disease, even Alzheimer's, inflammation in general has been a mechanism for the things I just mentioned. But, uh, you know, it's sort of been, oh, that's interesting, but so what? So I guess people should be brushing their teeth. That's the take-home message, end of story. But there's so much more to talk about, you know? I mean, I think... You know, we still live in an age where the mouth is looked upon as being just full of germs, full of bad bugs, and we got to do everything we can to kill those germs. I'm interested, intrigued to watch these television commercials that tell people that this or that mouthwash is something you should do because it kills 99% of germs. And, you know, I, I, certainly that's a topic that we will get into in great depth. But over the past decade or so, there's been so much talk about the gut-brain connection. And, you know, in a very real sense, the mouth is part of the gut. I mean, it's the, it's the gateway, it's the entranceway to the entire digestive system. And why it has been excluded, I think is fair to that it was excluded because people didn't really connect it. Uh, they didn't really recognize that there is this emerging science going on that you allude to. So that's certainly worth discussion. You brought that up. Let's go right to that. I know the answer, but... Tell me more about how you see the gut-oral-brain axis. And of course, we're talking about microbiomes. And, and include in that, if you can, more about the brain microbiome. A lot of people don't really think of, of the brain as having its own microbiome. Well, there is a big question there uh, that you asked. And I will say that when we talk about the gut-brain axis, the oral-brain axis, the reality is there's a connection between every every part of the body whatsoever. And we grew up and continue to kind of foster this notion of the body being an assemblage of fairly independent parts. It's kind of a mentality that stems from uh, the publications of Rene Descartes, that the body is nothing more than a complex machine with the lungs acting as a bellows and the heart is a pump. We now would you know, in the image, we'd put a laptop computer upstairs where the brain is, but that the notion of an integration of the body's various systems, I think is still very difficult for people to get their arms around, especially in the world of medical specialties, where you have neurologists, then you have pediatric neurologists, and then you have pediatric neurologists who specialize in epilepsy. And when do you finally take the step back and recognize that everything's communicating with everything else. And to your point, one of the pathways through which this communication takes place is via the various microbes that live on and in the body. 
the chemicals that they manufacture, as well as uh, connections between, for example, the gut and the brain by actual physical highways, like the vagus nerve, a physical connection between gut and brain, and of course, brain and gut as well. So that's more of an integrative approach to understanding how the body works. And when we get our arms around that way of looking at the human body, that's how it works, then we're in a better position to deal with what goes on when it doesn't work. When there is a problem involving a system that it may not be just in the brain that the issues are manifesting. If we validate that there is this really important connection, for example, between the gut and the brain, then we should perhaps include that in our query as to what may be involved when the brain is showing a problem, when the brain is dysfunctional. Similarly, and I know we'll unpack this later, the mouth and the brain, the oral microbiome, the organisms living within the mouth, how we now know they are connected, and therefore what might their role be in keeping the brain healthy, and also importantly, how might changes then manifest in the brain when the oral microbiome is disrupted. And and so ultimately, it does cause us to take a step back and embrace the vastness of what we are talking about. 99% of the, the genetic material in your body is bacterial. That's pretty profound because we think about the tens of thousands of genes that we inherit as part of our genetic legacy from our parents and all who have come before us. But the reality is that just looking at genetic material, we're far more numerically involved with bacterial genetic material than we are with our human DNA. And it's not certainly one or the other. There's this gorgeous interplay between the two. And interestingly, our our gut bacteria, for example, are changing the expression of our own human DNA moment to moment as well. Just yet another mechanism by which they're influencing health and disease resistance day to day, moment to moment. So it's a humbling relationship, that's for sure. It's a relationship that we have not embraced. And I'm not faulting science for that. I think it's taken an awful long time for us to really get our arms around how incredibly powerful is this influence of our symbionts, of these organisms, these commensal, meaning we share the dining room table with them, co meaning with and mensa, eat. We're eating with these organisms. They eat what we eat in the mouth, in the gut. And it's a very humbling experience, again, to get your arms around that. But we're making great progress, that's for I sure. I agree. It is very humbling. And I think I always thought of myself as just a, a human being, a homo sapien. But obviously, we're way more complex than that. And we have this other organism organisms on board And they are actually keeping us alive and keeping us well, as long as we're keeping them well and feeding them well and not disinfecting them like what we've been doing to the oral microbiome as a profession for a long time. little side question. So the oral microbiome really influenced me greatly when I first found out about it and started applying kind of a way of thinking and, and treatment and modalities and in any kind of healthcare situation, especially dentistry, but how did the all these axes and also the brain microbiome change how you actually felt about the whole thing? I mean, what specifically- That's a good question. And I've thought back in terms of what prompted me to get involved in that research, write the things that I wrote, the books that I published on the topic. There was a time when I began to see relationships between multiple sclerosis and gut-related disorders. A couple of occasions began 
appearing that related inflammatory bowel disease to risk for autoimmune conditions throughout the body and in the brain as well, i.e. multiple sclerosis. I thought, well, isn't that peculiar? Why, why would that be? And we began then seeing the data that showed this powerful relationship between gut-related issues, problems with digestion, problems with bowel movements, et cetera, in autistic children being you know, a profound association. We'll leave it at that. And I began wondering, well, why? Is it just that they happen to be autistic and happen to have gastrointestinal issues as well? We then began to see that perhaps the earliest sign or symptom rather as a harbinger for Parkinson's disease was constipation. Again, a gut-brain relationship. And these things made me want to dig a little bit deeper. Began exploring the relationship between things going on in the gut and some of the fundamental mechanisms that relate to brain disorders. And one of those fundamental mechanisms uh, was and is inflammation. We know that inflammation is really an upstream mechanism that's involved in so many brain degenerative disorders. Inflammation is really one of the central themes in Alzheimer's disease, for example, in Parkinson's and certainly in MS, at least immune dysregulation. And I began uncovering that relationship between things going on in the gut and the upregulation or turning on of inflammation in the body. Recognizing now that the things going on in the gut ultimately become systemic. They become in the body and potentially affect the brain. And I began uncovering literature that revealed that increased permeability or leakiness of the lining of the gut is a powerful event that sets the stage for two important things. Number one, increasing inflammation in the entire body. And number two, for compromising the balance, if you will, of the immune system leakiness of the gut by allowing certain chemicals that should stay in the gut to otherwise get out of the gut and into the systemic circulation and be challenged and greeted by our immune cells, a big event. Then I began asking, well, what in the world is going on? What's causing the leakiness of the gut? And I really focused my attention on many things, but I think two primary issues stepped to the foreground. They were number one, something called dysbiosis, meaning irregularities of the gut bacteria, changes in the gut bacteria, changes mostly a reduction in the diversity of the bacteria that live within the gut. And as a consequence, changes in function, changes in the chemicals that these bacteria produce. And really that played a huge role in increasing the leakiness of the gut. And the other thing had to do with how people respond to certain foods that they eat, even bypassing the gut bacteria for this moment of conversation, meaning that in some people, turned out to be a large number of people, uh, their consumption of a particular protein called alpha-gliadin, uh, which happens to be a component of something strange called gluten, who knew, mm-hmm. that when people consume alpha-gliadin by consuming gluten-containing foods, wheat, oats, barley, and rye, that it induces increased permeability of the gut lining. And I'm not specifically talking about people with celiac disease. I'm talking about something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which at the time I was exploring it, 
was variably described as affecting between 40 to 60% of humanity. We now know that that number is even higher, may actually include all humans, have some degree of reactivity in the gut lining, increasing leakiness, enhancing inflammation in response to their consumption of gluten. So that that opened the door. We had noted that gluten sensitivity was related to brain-related disorders, wrote a book called Grain Brain, kind of focused on that, as well as the damaging effects to the brain induced by a higher refined carbohydrate diet and sugar, and subsequently wrote a book called Brain Maker, which then really drilled down on the role of the gut bacteria, how when our gut bacteria are doing what they should do and trying to keep us alive because we are their host, they are maintaining that gut lining, keeping that wall intact, keeping the invaders out. And when I say invaders, I mean even chemicals doing their job. But in addition, how we can threaten our gut wall integrity based upon how we treat our gut bacteria. And certainly one of the most influential tools that we have to keep our gut bacteria healthy or threaten them are our food choices day in and day out. Additionally, the types of water we consume are very influential. And certainly, importantly, the medications that we take, many of which are over-the-counter, can be profoundly threatening to the gut bacteria. And that would include things like proton pump-inhibiting acid-blocking drugs and the ever-popular non-steroid anti-inflammatories that everybody pops day in and day out for their chronic pains or or whatever inflammation they're trying to quell. These have profound effects on the diversity and functionality of the gut bacteria and as such affect gut permeability. And interestingly, we see now some significant associations between consumption of, for example, the proton pump inhibiting drugs and at least a twofold to threefold increase for risk for things like stroke and Alzheimer's. We see similar increases in people who are chronically consuming drugs like uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in relation to other metabolic issues. So these are the types of studies that were becoming available to me as I was noodling how I could be upstream of the various neurological conditions that I was treating in, in my clinic, asking myself, well, why is this patient here in the first place? Yeah, I'll do the best I can to help them with their current situation, but how'd they get here? The reason I was paying attention to that really dates back to a quote from John Kennedy, who said that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, not when it's raining. I added that last sentence, not when it's raining, because my clinic are people for whom it's raining now, who are suffering from the problem. We should have fixed the roof while we had the chance. We should have paid attention to gut health, foods that you're consuming, medications that you're consuming, other aspects of your lifestyle that affect the gut, like sleep and exercise, and really do my very best to get that information out to the public so that we could keep people in the sunshine for as long as possible. You mentioned inflammation and permeability. It's the same thing in dentistry. Uh, periodontitis or gum disease, it damages the oral mucosal barrier. And this allows leakage. It allows cytotoxins, pro-inflammatory factors that are released by the bugs. And the bugs themselves 
like P. gingivalis, to travel through the bloodstream. And what you were talking about kind of made me think there are really two issues here. These things can get past the blood-brain barrier, and I want to talk to you about that, what factors affect that. But they shouldn't be traveling through the bloodstream to begin with because there's been a local failure of permeability due to inflammation. And so these little niches, yes, they communicate, the biome niches or axes communicate with each other. But if they start becoming dysfunctional or dysbiotic, then we're leaking stuff and the rest of the body, like the brain, has to protect itself. Talk about permeability of the blood-brain barrier. I know a lot of things get past it from the mouth. We can talk about fluoride later. What affects permeability? I know age is one factor, pH of the blood, but what should we know about blood-brain barrier and what does get past it? What shouldn't get past it? Well, let me first respond to a comment that you made before, and that is that, you know, well, we really shouldn't have this permeability in the mouth to allow cellular metabolites and or even actual full-on bacteria to make their way. And I'm going to take a step back and say, maybe let's consider the notion that that's not necessarily always true. We know, for example, that the gut increases its permeability after a meal, and that demonstrates itself by ratcheting up of some pro-inflammatory chemicals after we eat. There's obviously an upside for that. And I think that a lot has to do with the host in terms of us, how we are challenged when our bloodstream, for example, is confronted by the presence of bacterial components or the full-on bacteria themselves. And I would think that ancestrally, their oral health may not uh, have been stellar, let's be fair. But let me digress for just a moment. When you look at fossils of humans, they've got beautiful teeth. It's breathtaking to look at dental health in fossilized human remains from 1,000, 2,000, up to 5,000 years ago. It's only quite recently we begin to see this huge increase in dental caries, loss of teeth, and degradation of the supportive bony structure that allows us to retain our teeth. But having said that, we know that some of the, you mentioned P. gingivalis, some of the organisms themselves are actually able to degrade the functionality, the the way that the blood-brain barrier works to exclude bad things. This is a a gatekeeper, if you will, the blood-brain barrier that allows necessary things to get through the lining of the blood vessel, which is where it exists, and get into the brain. Obviously, we need certain things to get into the brain and get out of the brain for that matter, but we need a gatekeeper there. Certain things should not get in, just like certain things should not permeate out of the bowel and into the systemic circulation. And it turns out that many of the same products that threaten gut wall integrity similarly threaten the blood-brain barrier integrity. For example, earlier I mentioned alpha-glycan as a component of gluten. And it turns out that in, in some people, research reveals that this can lead to permeability of the blood-brain barrier. Who knew? It's one thing to have a leaky gut, It's quite another to have a leaky brain. Uh, Mm. It doesn't sound very pleasant. And as a matter of fact, it isn't pleasant. We know, and you mentioned quite correctly, that the integrity of the blood-brain barrier decreases as we age. A lot about physiology and pathophysiology means how the body works and patho, meaning what happens when it's degrading in terms of its function, has to do with compartments, has to do with uh, keeping things where they belong. Mm -hmm. And once we begin to degrade that function, we see that in association with aging, but that really 
seems to be one of the cornerstones of disease is the lack of what we call sequestration. Interesting note that a study was published about six weeks ago, very fascinating study. And it was an in, in vivo study, meaning in live animals, and the animals happened to be human beings. They were given two things or they didn't receive anything. The two things they were given were olive oil and extra virgin olive oil. Hmm. And uh, the third arm was those who didn't receive anything. And they were able, which is actually fairly straightforward today, to measure in live people the integrity of their blood-brain barrier. And what they found was there was some improvement with olive oil, but with extra virgin olive oil, it was pretty dramatic that they basically were able in adults and elderly adults to heal the leakiness of the blood-brain barrier just by virtue of consumption. I think it was 30 cc's a day of extra virgin olive oil. (laughs) I saw that and ramped up. I consume about a liter a week uh, of extra virgin olive oil for these and other reasons. Maybe explore that later on. but. We see a direct correlation between compromise of the blood-brain barrier and Alzheimer's disease in many neurodegenerative conditions. So I think in recognition that similar things that affect the gut lining can affect the brain, those are good considerations. In recognition that P. gingivalis, the bacterium that you referred to that has been associated, we'll talk about this, with Alzheimer's disease, can absolutely itself work its way into the brain because it targets that blood-brain barrier. It has a master key to the lock and can get in. Uh, And we've seen that in experimental animals, and now there's certainly evidence to support that in humans as well. Now, to your other point about the brain's microbiome, what a concept. The brain is anything but sterile. We know that the brain is colonized by a variety of organisms, some of them viral, some of them bacterial. We know that virus-wise, that a herpes simplex virus type 1 is certainly present in the brain. And it's an interesting relationship because higher levels of antibody against herpes simplex virus type 1 have been correlated to increased Alzheimer's risk, especially in individuals who carry, I hate to say Alzheimer's gene, but a genetic predisposition for increased risk for Alzheimer's disease called the APOE4 allele. Or if you have a 23andMe, it's called APOE4. That's something that you might want to look at. Chlamydia is found in the brain as Mm -hmm. well as its antibodies and several other bacteria. Interestingly, both herpes simplex virus type 1 and chlamydia, the antibodies can be tagged and can then, we can then use those antibodies to stain brain tissue and determine where they are in the brain. Where is there evidence of these bacterial components by staining them with antibodies against them? And lo and behold, what we find is that the these antibodies light up in juxtaposition to beta amyloid. Wow. What we're saying then is that herpes simplex virus type 1 and chlamydia pneumonia are co-localized, live in the same place as beta amyloid as these staining examples allow us or have revealed. And that's not even new data. That goes back probably at least 15 years, at least as it relates to a herpes simplex virus. That said, it causes us to wonder, well, why are they both there? What What's going on? Mm-hmm. And I think that we recognize that beta amyloid, that is the subject of incredible pharmaceutical investigation, 
in the quest to develop an Alzheimer's drug because it's been seen that there's beta amyloid in the Alzheimer's brain. Therefore, that must be the cause. We've got to get rid of the beta amyloid. Let's take a step back for just a moment and think about this relationship between these bacteria and viruses and beta amyloid. What might that indicate? Well, turns out that beta amyloid, aside from being this horrible thing that seems to be accumulating in the brains of Alzheimer's, is what we call an AMP, an antimicrobial peptide. Beta amyloid is increased as a response to these infections in the brain. Beta amyloid increases as an attempt to get rid of these organisms and or viruses, and as such then begins to increase inflammation in the brain. So we've gone upstream a little bit, haven't we? We've Instead of saying that beta amyloid is bad, let's get rid of it, we've gone upstream and said, well, beta amyloid is maybe not the problem, it's the response. So the enemy, beta amyloid, of my enemy, the viruses and bacteria, is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in that context, all of this hope of developing an anti-amyloid drug really, I think, needs to be revisited. We do not have, through this amyloid perspective, any Alzheimer's drug of any merit whatsoever. Right. And that's reality. And in fact, the new anti-beta amyloid drugs, the lecanemab, for example, that was just conditionally approved, has actually been demonstrated as of research that was published about two weeks ago to be associated with really significant brain atrophy, which was in the data used by the researchers, but did not interestingly, make its way to the publication, nor did it make its way to the FDA, but now has been revealed. And I think it's going to change the calculus a little bit in terms of, oh, calculus is a great term to use in talking to a dentist. (laughs) The calculus in terms of, it has two meanings, several meanings, in terms of where we go moving forward in terms of these anti-amyloid drugs as relates to Alzheimer's, there's a lot upstream. Desmond Tutu I'll paraphrase, has a quote that says something like, yes, it's important to pull people out of the river, but it's really much more important to find out why they're falling in. So we need to get upstream and keep people healthy as it relates to their brains and recognize all the things that we've just touched on one. And that's this permeability issue within the mouth that lets products of bacteria and bacteria themselves make their way into the systemic circulation. That's enough. I mean, we could talk about them getting into the brain, but let's just for a moment just talk about how devastating the fact that these products make their way into the body can be because they amp up inflammation. And those chemicals of inflammation are not kind to the brain. And we can go to that discussion if you want, because there's a lot going on when inflammation happens in the body for any reason, whether it's because of periodontal disease or inflammation anywhere in the body Mm -hmm. that has direct effects upon the brain that can be devastating. I think we see the body when it produces inflammation, that that is a very efficient, clean, zero loss type of approach, and it fixes it. But the way I see inflammation, and I think the way most of healthcare sees it now, is that there is a cost associated with inflammation, especially long-term inflammation. And that certainly is seen all over the mouth. But you mentioned about how that reaction, the amyloid plaque, ironic how we saw that as a solution. In fact, we were 
not seeing it as the brain's temporary or best solution at the time to fix itself. So P. gingivalis bug, it gets into the bloodstream. There are other mechanisms of gaining access to the rest of the body, of course. It could be a remnant of the cell. It could be a toxin that's produced by the cell, the cell itself. So let's say it gets past the blood-brain barrier, and you were alluding to this. What actually is the brain doing at that point? What are what are the downsides? What can it do? And what ultimately happens if that infection from the mouth keeps seeding and feeding that brain connection? Well, I, I think in a simplistic way, what we know P. gingivalis does in the brain has been clearly demonstrated in the mouse model for Alzheimer's disease, is it immediately enhances beta amyloid production. No surprise. Beta right. amyloid is an antimicrobial peptide. It's the brain's response to this organism. And it also expedites what's called the phosphorylation within the cell, within the neuron, uh, another protein called tau protein. And clearly, both of these events, the increased production of, of beta amyloid and the phosphorylation or, or putting phosphate on a another protein called tau protein are associated with Alzheimer's disease. We see these interneuronal inclusions of phosphorylated tau and the development of one of the hallmarks called neurofibrillary tangles, as well as this beta amyloid that appears in the Alzheimer's brain. But what did you just say? You said that the entree to this cascade was the entry of this P. gingivalis organism first making its way out of the mouth and secondarily making its way into the brain. And so then we enhance this cascade, a very a pro-inflammatory response cascade. But unfortunately, in the brain, once that cascade begins, many other factors are uh, initiated and continue acting that are disruptive and ultimately lead to loss of brain cells and importantly, loss of the integrity of what are called the synapses, the way that one brain cell connects to another. And and how that works is really kind of interesting for people who like to do the deep dive into the science. But let me see, just to break it down a little bit, there's a very important cell in the brain called the microglial cell. And it makes up about 10% of the cellular components of the brain. While that's a small number, nonetheless, it's really important. It's part of the brain's maintenance department, but it's really also considered part of the brain's immune system. This is part of what we call the innate uh, immune system. It's what we're born with as opposed to the acquired immune system, which is part of how we learn about our environments. And this microglial cell lives in the brain and acts in a very similar way to cells outside the brain that perhaps some of your viewers are have heard of called the macrophage. Macro means big, phage means to eat. So in a very real sense, the microglial cells are the brain's macrophages, although their point of origin, at least from the embryology perspective, is quite different. The, the microglial cells actually come from, embryologically, from the yolk sac. And so we have these cells, and they exist in many, many forms. But I think for simplicity, there are two major categories of the microglial cell. One is called the M2 form, and the M2 microglial cell in the brain is just wants to keep us healthy and happy. It nurtures the brain cells. It nurtures our synapses. It helps to degrade misfolded proteins like beta amyloid, and it's really what we want 
to have going on in the brain. We want a lot of those M2 cells just being happy and going around and just keeping our brain cells in tip-top shape. But it turns out, unfortunately, that this M2 microglial cell has an evil twin. And the evil twin is the M1 form. Mm -hmm. And it's the M1 form that degrades the synapses, causes cells to lose communication with each other, enhances the formation of this damaging protein, beta amyloid, reduces the brain's ability to clear itself of beta amyloid, and directly threatens the function and integrity of neurons. So obviously, for the most part, that's not the form of these microglia that we want to enhance. Well, the question that becomes, well, who decides? Do we have good M2 microglia or do we fall on the side of the threatening M1 microglia, the evil twin? Turns out there are multiple factors that influence which way a particular cell will go. And importantly, cells can shift back and forth between being M1 and M2. So they're a bit bipolar in that regard. We want to keep them in the M2 configuration, or what we call phenotype. And as it turns out, one of the most influential factors that threatens the M2 microglia and makes them into the evil twin is inflammation. So when we talk about anything that's going to possibly increase inflammation within the brain, like P. gingivalis making its way into the brain, like any leakiness of the blood-brain barrier that allows various chemicals to get into the brain and therefore increase inflammation, or even systemic inflammation in anywhere in the body like the gut that threatens the blood-brain barrier and, in, and can increase the change in these microglial cells, it really does tend to connect a lot of the understanding that we have as it relates to permeability in the mouth the role of this P. gingivalis and other mouth-related organisms, the role of gut inflammation and how that is associated with uh, brain inflammatory disorders. And when I say that, I'm including things like Alzheimer's disease and MS, for example. And overall, how systemic inflammation, be it gut inflammation, be it inflammation anywhere in the body, can have detrimental effects on the brain through this one idea that I've just put forth, and that is changing the morphology and the function of these microglial cells, therefore either nurturing and loving our brain cells and their connections or threatening them. So with that as a framework, we can understand why it's so important to look at the gut because of inflammation, to look at the mouth and and take that step back. And it's it's a lot to take in. I get it. I really get it. But again, it's very humbling and it fills me with awe that, you know, there's these incredible relationships, some of which we should look at in terms of what their positive attributes might be. You know, there's a time and a place when inflammation's a good thing. We want to mount inflammation very quickly, for example, when we get cut or we have trauma. We we need inflammation to help our bodies in that area get rid of the local infection, get rid of the bacteria, sterilize it, and pave the way for wound healing, for example. So, gosh, you know, there's a lot to take in. It's it's pretty uh, compelling. For me as a dentist, that's very daunting when I hear you say this, and it certainly is very complex and a little frightening, whether you're a practitioner or a patient. But as a dentist, I, I see periodontal disease, gum disease, as one of the most prevalent chronic diseases right now on on our planet. And if that's continually feeding the brain, and we just discussed all that oxidative stress on the brain, 
I guess I'm curious, we all have heard about plasticity of the brain, its ability to reverse certain things. How much can the brain take? If someone has gum disease, which we can't get rid of right away, usually we try and arrest it. It may take years, sometimes decades to to address. I mean, how does the brain deal with such a long-term source of inflammation and toxins and infection, injury. To me, that seems very daunting and a little frightening. I guess, obviously, you don't want to jump in the river of inflammation. You want to, You don't want to be dragged out. You want to prevent that fall into the river, be upstream, and that's the key, obviously. But for most of us, we have gum disease and oral disease, decay, throat decay as being the number one disease on the planet. How do you see that as a neurologist? If one of your big promoters of oxidative stress to the brain is so common in our society. Daunting is the word that you use, and I think it is daunting. But again, I want to go back and contextualize it a little bit, that we've probably always had periodontal disease to some degree, certainly not as as aggressive as it is now, no question that our diet and other factors are playing a role. But I think that Again, I mentioned earlier, I think that we've been exposed to what comes from the mouth and our systemic circulation and challenges at least the blood-brain barrier and whether it makes its way in or not is an issue that we can talk about now in terms of the term daunting. Because there's daunting means, wow, what are we going to do? And I think it really gets back to what do we do to fortify the, the blood-brain barrier? How do we reduce the threats to the integrity of the blood-brain barrier? And as such, live with the notion that, yeah, some bacteria are making their way into the circulation. That might not necessarily be a bad thing, as a matter of fact. I I think there's got to be upside. I think low-grade inflammation at times is a good thing. Uh, We just published a paper in February indicating that the brain has its way of, of dealing with its metabolism, and at times, there may be an advantage to having an inflamed brain. We'll talk about that perhaps if we have time. So I think let's just say it's a given that some of this stuff is going to make its way into the body and knock on the door of the brain. That's when diet becomes important because dietary issues are very relevant in terms of keeping the blood-brain barrier integrity intact. I mentioned the EVU study, the extra virgin olive oil study earlier. I mentioned gluten and gliadin and how that's directly threatening to the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. And so these are second order issues that I think might allow us to tolerate some bloodborne bacterial components while they're still excluded from being a part of what challenges the actual inside of the brain. So I think we work through that a little bit and recognize this is going on and perhaps it's not a big a deal as it could be, but in the situation where the blood-brain barrier becomes defective as it does with aging, as it does in the presence of a poor diet, one that's low in uh, various types of good fats, one that is high in exposure to gluten, for example. In that context, then P. gingivalis floating around in your bloodstream, other organisms as well, are given entree, and they make their way in and create havoc. And I, I can tell you that when you inoculate the brains of laboratory animals With that particular bacterium, P. gingivalis, all hell breaks loose. And so it's not that it maybe shouldn't be in in our mouths. It's in our mouths. Maybe we should get over it. It's in the context then of a leakier blood-brain barrier, I think, to bring it back to our discussion earlier. 
I found your comment about some inflammation being a good thing very dead on. In the mouth, that's very important. The mouth is very exposed to toxins and bacteria and infectious agents, and the immune system is very active and it's very sophisticated. And of course, all of us get inflammation in the mouth. Also, bacteremias. After a cleaning, you'll have a bacteremia. So all of that, the body's designed to do. But long-term, the gums easily overreact and it becomes a chronic state. And of course, then it becomes bad in so many different ways systemically. Let's finish our, we can't really not talk about fluoride. When it comes to effects on the brain, as it relates to oral health, dentistry, the profession, of course, is still, unfortunately, but was the profession behind adding fluoride to our water. And much of it was just by association. There was a dentist in Colorado that noticed that his kids were getting fewer cavities very small town with very well-contained borders. And and it wasn't really a study. It was more just of an observation. And those kids were getting fewer cavities, although they had little white spots in their teeth. There was a lot of fluoride in the water. And that's kind of where it all came from. And fortunately, now we have we have better research and studies indicating that fluoride is not a good thing and that it does get into the brain. For a long time, dentists were saying that there is no permeability of the oral mucosa and that fluoride was not getting in other than ingesting it. And of course, we now that we know that that's wrong. So let's talk a little bit about fluoride. We talked a lot about what a oral bug can do. Is it the same thing? Is it oxidative stress? Is it a more specific effect when fluoride gets into the brain that damages the brain? And how does it affect IQ? That's where most of the studies are going. I think that some of the mechanisms ultimately that we've already talked about are similar. I would say that a lot of the mechanistic descriptions are derived from using laboratory animals that, to be fair, use an awful lot of fluoride in the the study design, I think, to tease apart really what's going on. And certainly the amount of fluoride that, that people and children are receiving is dramatically less than those numbers. But it doesn't get off the hook the fact that fluoride is very disruptive. And I think you're alluding to what's going on in the brain. Fluoride specifically threatens the function of what we call neurotransmitters. And those are things like serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, for example. And that's, I don't know if it gets a lot of attention, but that's the coin of mental commerce. That's how one brain cell is connecting to another. And in the presence of fluoride, albeit larger amounts, that is significantly compromised. I mean, there are other things that fluoride does, but for just a moment, think about what that might indicate. We lived through a time when deficiencies of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine was thought to be the cause of Alzheimer's, you know, and certainly the development of drugs to increase the availability of serotonin in the treatment of depression has gotten certainly a lot of attention. But the notion of threatening our intracerebral or brain-related neurotransmission is worrisome. When the fluoride aggressively threatens what's called calcium regulation, and you know everyone understands calcium regulation as being important for bone health, et cetera, but you know calcium within and outside of a cell is really very important in terms of how neurons communicate with each other and how neurons even work, how they're able to transmit from one neuron to the next, or even within a neuron, really depends on the functionality of calcium and the whole calcium, what we call homeostasis, which is threatened by uh, by fluoride. Another issue is that fluoride is a direct mitochondrial toxin. And what does that mean? 
we learned in high school biology that the mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cell. And let's just leave it at that for a moment, that mm -hmm. the brain, which is so hyper-metabolic, consuming at rest, 25% of the calorie burn of the human body, but represents only about 3% of the total body weight, weight right. and yet it's hyper-metabolic, and that metabolism depends on the function of these intracellular organelles called mitochondria. There might be a thousand mitochondria in any given brain cell. So the number of mitochondria within your brain is beyond comprehension. That said, brain really relies on mitochondrial function. When we threaten mitochondrial function, we threaten brain energetics, and that's a very, very bad thing. And let me get back to something we had talked about earlier. When mitochondrial function is disrupted, we increase the production of chemicals that damage tissue, that called free radicals, damage proteins, damage fats. These free radicals, when they are increased, guess what? They favor the evil twin. <laughs> Remember our discussion about the oh, yeah. microglia, the good yeah. M2, M2 and, and the M2, bad right? M1? Yep. Higher levels of free radicals, i.e. fluoride exposure, mm -hmm. favors the increased production or the change of our microglia to the evil twin, the M1 phenotype that then goes on to threaten our synapses, threaten neurons themselves, allows increased accumulation of beta amyloid within the brain. So certainly that's not a good thing to threaten these intracellular organelles like the mitochondria. Another intracellular organelle that is threatened, and we're really getting technical here, but there's another organ within each cell called organelle called the endoplasmic reticulum. And what is the endoplasmic reticulum involved with? Well, it's involved with the production of protein, again, the metabolism of the cell, specifically the metabolism of fat, and also, as mentioned before, the homeostasis, the balance of, of calcium. And it turns out that endoplasmic reticulum functionality is yet another area of compromise when in experiments that increase the availability of fluoride. To what extent that is at play within humans, I think is debatable. But I think that the studies that challenge us to appreciate that fluoride is threatening to the developing brain in terms of IQ are really important because I think most of what you read, which tends to be supportive of fluoride, uh, indicates that the only times we need to be concerned is when there's something called fluoride toxicity. And, and mm -hmm. it does happen. When there's been excessive mm -hmm. exposure to fluoride, then there's clearly a link to IQ and to cognition right. in general. Fluoride that's obviously a bad thing. Yep. But that's a continuum. It's not digital. It's not either it is or it it's not isn't. Binary. Right. It's not like pregnancy. So if a big dose of fluoride could really threaten cognitive function and threaten brain cells, I think it's fair to assume then that a smaller dosage could well be threatening, although not to the extent that it's clearly demonstrable by a dramatic drop in IQ points. But I think it, it's fair to understand that if the mechanism that's used in experimental research that we've talked about in animals, and if the data that relates to humans who've been exposed to very high levels of fluoride is accurate, then I think it's fair to assume that lower dosages can have damaging effects upon the brain, certainly not the extent of the toxicity studies. We know that fluoride enhances neuroinflammation, and we talked about why that's important, how that favors the evil twin, how inflammation is the mm -hmm. cornerstone of 
Alzheimer's for that matter. And finally, I think on a more systemic level, we know that the functionality of of thyroid hormone is compromised in the presence of fluoride. And the thyroid gland, the hormone put out by the thyroid gland, is influential in virtually every tissue in the human body. To threaten that by exposure to fluoride, I think that could throw a very, very large net. So the argument's going to be, well, that if we're not using fluoride, kids are going to get more cavities and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Therefore, we need to pump fluoride into the municipal drinking water, make sure everybody's getting enough fluoride. I think that's ill-advised because, you know, one of the discussions is that it threatens the developing brain. Well, guess what? Your brain is developing for your entire lifetime. When you're 90 years of age, your brain is still developing. You're still growing new brain cells. You're still making new connections, making new synapses. So this notion that, well, we only have to be careful in children because they have a developing brain, and at age 18, that all, all bets are off, that's not really accurate. Your brain continues developing and refining itself your entire lifetime. Let's just end our conversation with the pineal gland. Again, it's in the brain. It's part of the endocrine system, but it is heavily innervated. And you mentioned that fluoride interferes with the calcium metabolism, very important metabolism in the body. If, I mean, the pineal gland does calcify over time with age, but if it calcifies prematurely and there's more fluoride in there, what effects would that have? Systemically. Well, and it does calcify. I mean, we yeah. routinely see calcification of the pineal gland. We look at various types of brain scans. Primarily, it shows up best on a CT scan. Mm-hmm. And for years, it was sort of a so what kind of a thing. It was called an incidental finding. Well, you just happen <laughs> to find it and yes. let's move on. But I think in recognition of what the pineal gland is doing in terms of helping us regulate our circadian rhythm, I think that enhancing its calcification, which may be considered an accompaniment of aging, which may explain why we are more disrupted with respect to sleep and circadian issues in general as we age. But I think enhancing that is not a good thing. And I think the notion that uh, fluoride exposure can bring that on at an earlier age is not a good thing. That has a play in terms of immune function, for example. So I think we'll watch that literature and see how it unfolds. But I would expect we're going to learn more and more about that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think that may rise on the list of potential complications of fluoride exposure. And I'm, I'm glad that people are taking a second look at this because I think you alluded to earlier how the, the morphing into fluoridation of municipal water systems based on marginal evidence, was there evidence that it helped reduce caries? There was some, I'll admit mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. but let's, gosh, let's talk about risk-benefit ratios right. here. No one, is, no one is assessing evil. the risk, yeah. and that's devastating that we would even consider moving ahead with this without considering potential risk. It's just, it's unfair is what it is. It is. Well, I'm glad that we're having this conversation about fluoride as a potential neurotoxin. It's great to be able to have that conversation with a neurologist. It's always great to check in with our medical colleagues on this. There's not enough collaboration between our two professions. Certainly, we could Until today. Until today. And there's certainly more we could have covered. Facial development, how that affects brain health, uh, brain development, also neuropsychiatric disorders, and dysbiotic oral microbiome. A lot of interesting advances and studies there connecting 
dysbiosis in the mouth to psychotic disorders, personality disorders, fascinating. And mood uh, disorders as well. And mood disorders as well, cognitive abilities and all that. We could go on and on, and hopefully we'll have the chance to do that. Great speaking with you, Dr. Perlmutter. I'm always a big fan of everything you do. How would you like people to interact with you or find you? I'm a big fan of your newsletter. I That gets pieced out and picked out and put into one of my folders to read. Well, you can do whatever you want. You can cut and paste if you like. I think the best place to find me would be drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. That's, you know, sort of my clearinghouse for the books I've written, my podcast, blogs, et cetera. So that's a good place to start, drperlmutter.com. I would certainly recommend a lot of your books, starting off with, uh, actually, Drop Acid was fascinating. A lot of oral health applications there as well. And and I, I want to thank you also for kind of stepping off that first stage that took you a lot of work to get to. That was you know medical school and then residency and then, of course, specialty school and being a physician. But for you to step out and spend your golden years educating and being an influencer which I'm sure you never thought would happen back before the internet while you were had your head down in the medical books. I just want to thank you for all the information that you've put out there, the books you've written, and the speaking engagements that you do. It's, it's a very noble thing that you're doing, and I admire it greatly. Well, I appreciate that. And Don't stop I, this. <laughs> I appreciate being appreciated. So okay. uh, thank you, and thank you for all that you do. I mean, I think moving forward, what you are doing, what's in your future is really amplifying this bridge between oral health and systemic disease. And I think certainly a brain disease as well. It it needs a lot of attention. It's being ignored. And I commend you for you know being sort of in the vanguard for making this information known. So thanks. Well, thank you for that. And there's definitely more to talk about, more to collaborate on. And I just recently pulled up a few studies that are about six weeks old. I'll send them over to you. I found them fascinating. Thank you so much for your work and also your time. We'll we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me today. It was great. Thanks, David. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a dentist, doctor, or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional dental care provider, you can visit askthedentist.com directory and search or find a dentist database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, is a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.